You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Thank you for joining the or Twitter space. Um, my name is Marie Lamanche. I work at Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies uh, at Concordia University. And also with me today is my colleague, Lauren Salim who is currently leading one of our um, new key projects titled the Digital Peace Project, which seeks to basically contribute to um, international and national efforts to mitigate online hate while respecting freedom of expression. And just to let you know, as, as our name say, says, uh, we're an organization and uh, think tank based in Montreal. So what we want to have today, what we do today is have, yes, a... Um, national and international perspective, but we also want to understand how Canadians are going to respond to uh, Elon Musk's acquisition of, of Twitter, but also see what's going to happen um, elsewhere. Uh, to discuss the topic today, I'm delighted to host five excellent experts on propaganda, disinformation, social media, platform governance, democracy, and human rights. Uh, first, we have Dr. Uh, Emma Bryan. She's a British scholar and academic researcher on media and contemporary uh, propaganda. Thank you very much, Emma, for being here. We also have David Troy. He's a, a um, researcher and technologist. Uh, he's interested in hybrid warfare and threats to democracy. Uh, Peter MacLeod, who uh, is the co-founder and principal of um, Mass LBB, LBP, I think I said that right, Peter. <laughs> uh, he's a leading expert in public engagement and deliberative democracy. He led a very interesting project in Canada uh, about what Canadians want to hear and see on social media platforms. So thank you very much, Peter, for being here. Uh, next, we have Professor uh, Taylor Owen. Taylor, thank you for being here. Uh, he's a Beaver Brook. Uh, chair in Media Ethics and Communications, uh, and he works at the Center for Media Technology and Democracy at McGill University. Thank you, Taylor, for being here. And finally, last but not, not least, we have Hua Cho, um, Senior uh, China Researcher for uh, Human Rights Watch. Uh, she recently wrote an excel- excellent um, uh, report on the implications of Elon Musk's uh, acquisition of Twitter and what it means from basically from China for China and for human rights activists, not only in China but around the globe. Thank you all for being here. Because we have quite a few speakers, we have decided to basically ask some targeted questions to our speakers, um, which Lauren and I will um, ask. Uh, but I want to start perhaps to a question with a question to perhaps everyone. Um, we learned basically recently over the weekend. Uh, that Musk had fired a lot of people who are responsible for content moderation, for policy and ethics, and for legal and human rights content in AI. How do you think this will impact the presence of hate speech and disinformation on the platform and and, and the current state of the information space? Perhaps we can start with, with, with Emma. Thank you. Yes. Um, so... If I may just uh, start by, um, you know, giving you a little bit of insight into the way that I think about the problem, because I, I mean, a simple answer to your question is, is those things are going to go up. <laughs> but uh, I think um, that, you know, in order to understand what's happening, I think we need to conceptualize like what's actually, you know, what he's doing to the platform uh, with these firings. Um so propaganda isn't um, necessarily about the sort of falseness of a particular message uh, or a persuasive post. Um, w- what I study, essentially, it's a process, um, an, an attempt to organize information uh, to influence others' understanding and wider culture and discourses and produce you know, a deliberate um, change in the world. Now, um, that's why the hiring and firing matters in this, um, you know, reorganization of the platform, because what um, Musk is doing is um, is, is, is a, a, an organizational creation of a communication space that better aligns with the shift in culture he wants to create. And yes, that absolutely will, you know, have implications for 
um, you know, raising certain voices and interests on the platform. And, and that includes nation states interests, I would say, uh, which I know is an uh, underlying theme of, of what you're wanting to focus on with this space. Um, and, you know, obviously his, you know, ideal of what free speech might look like. Now, I'm, I, I would say I'm a, a free speech advocate, generally speaking, but um, I think the, the problem is that the space that he is creating isn't about really people having a, a free, a, you know, expression and ability to, um, you know, have a, <laughs> what's often called the public square. Um, it's, it's actually about advancing a particular ideology and, and reorganization of society. Um, I'll, I'll stop there so others can respond. Thank you very much. Um, Dave, I know you recently wrote a very good um, uh, article on Medium about this, so perhaps you can go next. Yeah, sure. So to further expand on what Emma was saying, this really is about changing the culture, both within Twitter and more broadly. And to really understand where Musk is coming from, you kind of have to get into the, his background as, as being a kind of um, uh, uber libertarian. Um, you know, he's really trying to uh, decentralize things, uh, to push towards a much more lightweight uh, kind of, uh, you know, company structure so that less resources are required. I think there's a kind of um, tech solutionism that underlies some of this as well, that both like he and Jack Dorsey have come to believe that there are technical solutions to what are at root probably some very difficult human problems. And so, you know, the, all of this is an effort to shake things up rather quickly and somewhat radically in order to start to introduce uh, this different way of looking at this this set of problems. And, you know, as Emma said, uh, it's going to lead to an uptick and more of, um, you know, this kind of negative activity with, with not having as many eyeballs on it. But I think their, their thought is, is that they're going to be able to correct for that uh, by way of structural changes over time. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, what, uh, yeah, Cho, perhaps you can bring in a bit of an international perspective as well, especially, I mean, I heard yesterday that uh, a lot of people from the team in India had been fired as well, which is kind of frightening. Actually, I work quite a lot with uh, Twitter's human rights team because part of my job is to protect the human rights activists in China uh, or you know, in the diaspora who are critical of the Chinese government. So they get trolled a lot by the Chinese government-sponsored uh, you know, accounts. And sometimes their accounts get suspended because the trolls report them for abusive content, which is obviously fake. So you know, when those things happen, I talk to Twitter saying, you know, this person's account has been suspended. Uh, you know, can you do something about it? They respond usually quite quickly. So I had a good relationship with them. Uh, recently, there was the activist. Uh, her name is Jian Wang. She's UK based. Um, her account got suspended, and she asked me, you know, can you help with this? I was like, sorry, Jen, uh, my contacts at Twitter all got fired. So you know, like this is a real consequence for real people. They have been, you know, doing great work to, uh, you know criticize the government, uh, you know, organize pro-democracy act activism. But this, you know, now her account is, I think her account was suspended for quite, you know, period. So, you know, that's a good example of what the real consequence. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, Peter, do you want to go next? Uh, great to be able to join all of you. And, um, yeah, you know, I'd make a, just a couple of quick observations. First, you know, Canadians are no strangers to communications monopolies, and uh, we don't particularly like them. I think, you know, building on the work of the Canadian Citizens Assemblies on Democratic Expression, I would just echo the discomfort of Canadians with tech companies that aren't accountable. And when they look at the largest social media platforms, they see a pronounced lack of accountability. So, you know, when we see Elon Musk dismissing the board, appointing only himself as a, a sole corporate director, uh, firing the, the thousands of employees that uh, my colleagues have, have already mentioned. You know, we have to assume that these moderation departments, these national offices, these accessibility departments, they existed for a reason. Uh, they grew out, presumably, of, of uh, real deficiencies that the platform is seeking to address. So I, I, I think um, we're going to see, unfortunately, the consequences of these cuts very quickly. And I think it would just reinforce the 
profound discomfort the Canadians actually feel, but don't really have many channels to express over the um, the power that these platforms have in our lives and and their inability to um, to to hold them accountable or to uh, see that you know the needs of uh, our society as a whole are is, is well cared for. Absolutely. Um, finally, Taylor, um, do you have a few things to say about this as well? Uh, sure. Yeah. Look, I, I agree with much of what's been said already, and I think. Um, look, there's a clear, very clearly a sense within the community of people that are kind of now running this company that there are engineering or technological solutions to these kind of uh, human moderation challenges. And I think this is, I mean, there may be an element of truth to that, but I think this goes against a lot of what we've learned over the last decade in um, how these large platforms um, can and cannot um, moderate or should and should not moderate. Um, the behavior of their users. Um, but I think we also need to be careful. Like, yes, Twitter's done some good things and they built up uh, a solid human rights team. But like we just heard, like the real limitations, even to the model they had already tried. So the fact we're getting rid of just that baseline is something we should note. It's not like the, this problem was solved and now it's gone. They were working and experimenting in some limited ways in, in how to address this pretty wicked problem, particularly um, in countries outside of the United States. Um, but they were only doing so much, and even that capacity is now gone. And the final point I'd make here is this, all of this is ultimately a cost or a consequence of outsourcing um, this responsibility to private companies, that we are beholden to the whims of whether it's Facebook or Google or, or YouTube or um, Twitter, um, and their sense of responsibility or corporate interests in moderating content and promoting human rights over certain other kinds of speech on their platform. And so we shouldn't be at all surprised when these private actors on a whim make a different decision. I mean, this is, this is a, a consequence of us not as democratic societies um, uh, governing them in a way that gives them no choice to make to prioritize human rights and, uh, and the interests of our citizens over those of others. So, I mean, this is just a consequence of outsourcing these capacities to private actors. Um, and I think it only increases our, um, the necessity and our responsibility um, to take some of that um, responsibility away from them and uh, place it on the, on the broader collective good. Uh, no, absolutely. I think all the fears that we hear now from from users and even from, from the UN, yesterday they put out a, a statement about this as well. It's like, it, it's a, it's our failure to hold these companies accountable to put in some regulations. And perhaps one question that, that I have for, for Dave and Emma, um, why, I mean, I can't see at the moment the um, business incentives for the buying of, of this platform. So was Musk's decision to buy Twitter purely ideological and what's his vision of of speech speech especially i mean for for us canadians and for people perhaps in europe it's difficult to understand perhaps the american view of, of, of free speech yeah i mean i think this this was the subject of the art you know a couple of articles that i've written on this topic most recently and you know the basic thing you have to kind of consider when you're thinking about musk and his uh paypal uh friends who have been advising him on this as well as you know jack dorsey seems to be in on this as well is you know they're they're all really into cryptocurrency and um bitcoin and you know the idea of kind of displacing the dollar they're also you know ideologically very bent on just the general concept of decentralization so I think that there's a kind of, if you have to look at a, a deeper ideological motive, it's really this idea of decentralization of social media, of money. And I think that they have some hope that if they can kind of steer Twitter towards a more decentralized future, uh, which seems at the moment to consist mostly of pushing people onto Mastodon, which is sort of interesting. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you can conceive of this uh, decentralized future of social media, it might lead to a decentralization of money as well. And so, you know, that's a very big picture um, kind of overview. But um, I think that, you know, in terms of how they think free speech should evolve within that. There's an interesting paper that um, Renee DeResta wrote um, several years ago, I think in 2018, and she's a researcher at Stanford. And it, she describes a concept in there called islands of dissensus. 
And um, I, I think this may be the kind of concept that uh, they're going for with this is the notion that, you know, you can have all kinds of separate, um, you know, separate but equal little islands of belief that people can settle into and, you know, exercise their free speech and what some people may find uncomfortable, you know, they don't have to be exposed to. From my perspective, the challenge with something like that is that it basically sounds like, you know, lots of islands for radicalization and for people to become kind of separately uh, spinning off into their own realities. And I don't know that that's going to end up producing the kind of long-term results in society that we actually want. But um, I, I think you have to look at look at this not as a business investment, but very much as a cultural and geopolitical investment that is aiming to bring the world in a very different direction than the, than the trajectory that it had been on. And that's why it doesn't really make sense to people, because from a business perspective, none of the moves that they're making make any sense at all. Thank you very much. Emma, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean agreement really on I mean obviously I've read what Dave's written recently and I think he's he's you know nailed it really when it comes to the economic side of things I'd also second second you know what he's been saying about um, long-termism you know as an ideology having spent some time talking to people in um, Silicon Valley and, and I think part of the problem is like um, our, our governments are not and, and politicians are not really you know they don't understand this really um you know the whole um ideology seems very alien to anybody outside of this little cult that that we see um i i would say um the other thing is that you know if you are able to you know if you're like a powerful oligarch like elon musk is um, and you're able to have a free hand reorganizing our communication sphere into essentially um, a propaganda apparatus or influence operation um, to drive your own ideological agenda. This will have, you know, the effect of building your own economic agenda and your own interests down the line. And it's not like Elon Musk and, you know, Jack Dorsey and so on are in any risk of poverty, any so I, I think they, like Dave says, they have a much bigger plan in mind. Actually, will be very much, you know, um, uh, self-serving at the end of the day. You know, we need to think about this less in terms of, you know, okay, did he make a profit? Will he make a profit in the short term? That kind of thing, um, and more in terms of like, well, what's what's being done here, and how what will be the ultimate outcomes. Thanks very much, Emma. And I have perhaps one, one quick question to Taylor. Um, Musk announced the, the, the creation of a content moderation console. What, what do you expect to see on this console? Do we can we expect like hate-filled like groups who face hate-filled violence to actually have a say on this, or to be on that content uh, moderation board? I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, it's I don't think anybody does. I haven't seen a lot of mention of it since that initial post of his um, early in this whirlwind last week. Um, but look, I think uh, oversight boards like Facebook's has been a model that has proven relatively successful at addressing some types of issue, content moderation issues um, that platforms face. But it certainly, not a, it certainly isn't a catch-all for all of these really complicated and daily decisions that get made by these companies. It's more of a precedent-setting um, uh, body or process that can kind of do, place broad directives um, on the policies of these platforms. Or at least that's how the Facebook oversight board has been structured and mandated. Um, it's not a council that will decide day-to-day -day decisions um, on any one piece of content or any um, one actor on the platform. So sure, great they're doing it. I think they can a lot learn, learn a lot from the Facebook's, Facebook's experience of what to do and not to do. Um, but this is not a sort of um, an ultimate uh, cure for the content moderation problem here. Um, our next question is open to any of the speakers. Whoever wants to jump in um, can go first. But because Twitter is where a lot of people go to get their news and information, it matters that we know who is a reliable source um, of information. Musk announced that people who want a verified account with a blue check mark will need to pay $8 how do you think this change will change the dynamic on the platform and what are the risks of having more disinformation and propaganda as a result of this? Emma, did you want to 
jump on. <laughs> yes, sorry. Yeah. I, I couldn't get my mic off quick enough. Um, <laughs> it actually relates to this too. So um, I was just wanting to say that, like, you know, what we're seeing here essentially is like a modern imperialism. And, um, you know, I've been extremely frustrated with what I see as policymakers, researchers and journalists sort of failure to understand the online challenges um, as structural problems, you know, in our democracy and in, you know, this kind of infrastructure. Um, there's a failure to sort of a, a focus on the institutions, the industry, the governments um, as primary organization of power. And instead, we've sort of elevated, you know, people leave, leading debates and setting the problem definitions around these surface um, you know, and technical um, uh, solutions and effects and, and you know, um, and, and matters and, and making these kind of content moderation challenges and, you know, um, whether or not, um, you know, actors are verified or not and, and charges and things like this. Um, it, it kind of, for me, distracts from the larger issue, you know, that... Um, essentially you know this um it, it, it it's it's essentially a, a distraction from what we're seeing as, as as some kind of reorganization of a whole um uh communication apparatus and whether or not you know there he charges for labels or you know i i think yes these things matter in the in in a sense of they are part of that reorganization but, you know, ultimately, we need to be looking at the bigger problem there. Thank you. Thanks so much, Emma. Dave, I saw your hand up as well. Did you want to chime in? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that, you know, the one thing that I would say that we want to keep an eye on is what are the effects of very quickly going through this kind of um, uh, reorientation of the public's idea of, you know, what it means to be a trusted source. So right now, you know, everybody that's got a blue check, you know, everybody sort of has the sense that like they've been through a process of verification and or that they these people matter for some reason. And so I think one of the things that Musk is trying to push back against um, is the idea that that group of people with all the little blue check marks constitutes a kind of priesthood uh, that is acting as a gatekeeper on the culture. And I think that there's a lot of resentment towards that notion that there are people who, um, you know, are holding the keys to reality or whatever. And I don't I, I think that's not even as true as they would like to think it is. But the fact is, is that they see this as some great wrong to be disrupted. And so the idea that it goes from being a priesthood to being a um, a commodity, something that anybody can purchase for $8 seems to them to be, you know, somehow or another democratizing. And I think that that's maybe not true. But um, I think that's kind of what they think they're doing. And then I think once that's happened, you know, we're going to end up in, in a state afterwards where, uh, you know, all sorts of people have blue check marks and all kinds of people that used to have them didn't. And then people are going to be looking at having one as a kind of anti-status symbol. And so I, I don't know how that's all going to work out. But as Emma says, it's going to lead to structural change that is going to have much broader effects on how people perceive reality. And, um, you know, that's likely to have its own follow on effects that we haven't even thought about yet. So that's, I think, what we should probably be paying attention to. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dave. Yacho, I see your hand. Um, maybe I can bring the perspective from the human rights community in authoritarian countries. I mean, a lot of the activists, they are verified by Twitter. Uh, you know, some of them are anonymous because it's risk, you know, you can go to jail for criticizing the government in a lot of countries, in China, in Myanmar, in Thailand, right? So they have the verification uh, check mark. Um, you know, sometimes I hope to facilitate that process. Uh, you know, if, if you have to pay for that, that will require a credit card that will, you know, possibly review the, the information of who are the person who is tweeting from that account. And that brings huge risks to those activists in authoritarian countries. Awesome. Thanks so much. And Yacha, I'm going to come back to you um, on a similar point, sort of as we switch gears to the impact of on this Twitter change in different political landscapes. And you alluded earlier to um, kind of a, a change in your ability to facilitate people getting their human rights activists getting their accounts back online after suspensions to, to maintain their safety. Um, but Twitter has a small but mighty presence in countries like Nigeria, Turkey, India, and Saudi Arabia. 
And dissidents often rely on the anonymity of Twitter, as you were mentioning, to be able to speak. Um, in, in these countries, sometimes the platform itself is more liberal than the government. Do you think Twitter will continue to be able to make sure that these people can remain safe? I think the simple answer is if the people who used to do that job, they're all fired. So how can you still make sure that these people are safe when there's no people to actually do the job? So I really hope that, uh, you know, Musk comes to his senses, right? I mean, the, there's a learning curve. Maybe he will realize, you know, this is not the way that it is supposed to work and come to his senses and, uh, you know, bring back those people. I mean, like in countries like in India, I think, because of the efforts by the human rights community, including us at Human Rights Watch, I think Twitter recently began began to address the issue and began to you know do more to protect protect vulnerable communities. So I think firing those people really is a sign that you know they don't want to do this anymore. Um, I mean, this is really depressing. Uh, I talked to activists in China, and I, you know, saw news about other activists in other countries in India, in Turkey. They are speaking up. Um, you know, like, I really, you know, we we have not that much power. In, by, by even having this conversation, I hope some people who are making a decision will hear our concerns and come to their senses. Thanks. Um, Peter, I, I'd like to ask you um, to, to talk perhaps a little bit um, about the Canadian perspective on this, especially the, uh, the project that you have, the Citizens' Assemblies. If you could tell us a little bit what, 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 they, what they are and what you learned from them and what the Canadian perspective is um, about you know, social media such as Twitter and the presence um, of, of online hate. Uh, certainly. Um... You know, we were tasked by the, the federal government and, and with funding uh, from Canadian Heritage and the McConnell Foundation and asked to, to do something that you don't really see in a lot of other jurisdictions when it comes to uh, you know, these efforts to, to try and regulate the digital platforms. Uh, and that was to go well beyond you know, conducting a survey or bringing together a, a kind of expert panel and, and instead reach out deeply across society and invite, um, in this case, Canadians into the conversation. So, you know, it was, uh, we thought, initially difficult timing because we sent out letters uh, in uh, February of 2020 uh, inviting Canadians to, uh, to join us in Winnipeg and Ottawa. 10,000 letters went out to randomly selected households in every corner of the country. And of course, COVID struck just a month later. Uh, but that notwithstanding, we had more than 600 Canadians volunteer for the first of what would become three different citizens' assemblies. And we randomly selected the members in such a way that it basically put Canada in a room with every province and territory, half men, half women, which I always like to say is a good deal better than our legislatures and parliaments. Uh, and we, we treated them as though they were citizen representatives, as though they were in a sense, a, a parliamentary committee, they had the opportunity to hear from the same range of experts that was at the same time also uh, speaking to a, a, a sister process, the, the commission, which was co-chaired by my, my friend Taylor here, as well as the former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin. So you had these two processes that were really working through a lot of the very challenging issues that are at the core of any discussion about expression and speech and and its regulation and we were learning in real time from other jurisdictions uh, around the world it wrapped up this uh, past june with a capstone report uh, commissioncanada.ca is where anyone can download all of the, the the information and get into the details but you know I, i'd make just quickly a few comments uh you know the the canadians that participated really grappled uh, with their task. They, they didn't come in all seeing eye to eye, um, but it was that exchange of experiences and perspectives that I think made for a very rich conversation. Where did they get to? Well, I, I mean, first, they observed that there are many rules already, uh, laws on the books uh, that simply aren't being enforced. You know, if you're the subject of someone who's being serially harassed on a social media platform and you try and get your local police or the RCMP involved, good luck uh, finding a crown prosecutor to take up the case is a, a very hard thing to do. So you know, we're not doing enough uh, to deploy the 
justice resources that we already have and do deploy in our you know offline worlds online uh, beyond that though i mean some very uh, straightforward housekeeping um perhaps like elon musk they don't have a lot of time for bots and either they need to be swept off the platforms uh, or there needs to be mandatory labeling uh and and very significant restrictions uh besides that you know Canadians would like, actually, uh, to be able to do more to control their online experience. They want to be able to own their data. They think, uh, forget this conversation, but blue or white check marks, I guess, on Twitter. Uh, they think there ought to be some kind of service, a third-party service that verifies users uh, and that that verification would tr be cross-platform. Uh, so not only can you take your data, but you can take your identity um, across the platforms as well. They're very concerned about the monopolistic powers of these platforms and so look to invoke competition law and other mechanisms to try and reduce their power. Um, Canadians are big believers in investing in high quality journalism, but they're also attentive to the fact that once something gets online, it can be manipulated. And so they're, they're probably forerunners in thinking about a mechanism that could be used to ensure the veracity of the information that they're seeing. Um, and they, they think, you know, critically, as we're talking about, you know, different countries now being kind of swept away in, in terms of having a, a, a desk in the Twitter offices somewhere, you know, they're very attentive to the, the needs of different communities within Canada. We've got this extraordinary pluralistic society we need social media platforms to be able to respond to those uh, those differences and, and with kind of cultural awareness and, and appropriateness. Um, the last thing I'd say is they certainly endorse the work of, of the federal expert panel uh, and the commission in, in this shift towards a kind of consumer protection uh, ethos, the idea that the onus needs to be on the platforms themselves to demonstrate that they're safe. This is something we expect of any Food stuff you can buy in a grocery store, any car you can drive down the road. Why wouldn't we make it a requirement of the platforms to prove that they're safe for children, prove that they're safe for uh, vulnerable communities, and prove that they're safe for our democracy? So others on this call can speak in greater detail to what that might look like and the use of things like risk assessments. But the, the point I'd make is that Canadians are frustrated. They feel they've been left in a regulatory vacuum. It's been an uncontrolled social experiment, and they would call on parties on both sides of the aisle uh, to get serious about regulation and move quickly. Thanks very much, Peter. And it's a very good transition to my next question, perhaps to you, um, both Taylor, Taylor and yourself. Um, that a host of, of other countries, it, it goes from you know, Turkey, Brazil, Britain, Germany, Australia, to name only a few, have, you know, they are considering imposing new obligations on social media platforms. Uh, but, you know, in Turkey, a court ordered tweets to be taken down that were critical of the government and Twitter refused to abide by, the, by, by, by these laws. In Canada, in Canada, we have Bill C-11, which would greatly increase uh, uh, government co uh, governmental control of, of online content. And then in the EU, we have the risk assessment and code of practice disinformation. How do you expect uh, Elon Musk to deal with these local uh, content moderation laws? Perhaps, Taylor, if you want to go first. Yeah, sure. Happy to jump in there. I mean, look, I think one of the central challenges of platform regulation is this disconnect between the national powers and obligations, particularly of democratic states, and the global nature of the platforms. Um, there is a, there's often a, a real tension there. Um, the platforms would prefer one set of policies and rules for everybody on the planet, for all their users, um, but that's not how governance works and, how, and where states derive their power from. So um, there's a number of sort of elements of the question that he just posed there that are worth sort of highlighting. I mean, one is, um, does the fact that a liberal regimes around the world might use their own power to curtail the rights of their citizens via regulation of these platforms, does that certain reality, as we're seeing in Hungary and Turkey, um, and in a wide number of countries, a growing number of countries around the world, does that reality um, mean that democratic countries should not use their own democratic powers um, to put the interests of their citizens um, 
to embed the interests of their citizens in the rules and regulations that oversee um, their behavior online. And I think that's a difficult question. Um, my view on it is that democratic countries have every right to govern the the products that their citizens use. Um, and that is what's happening on these platforms. And the second question is sort of, um, what should democratic countries do? And I actually don't agree that Bill C-11 um, substantially increases the role of the state in determining what content Canadians um, on social media platforms see and don't see. Um, but I think upcoming online harms legislation um, does step into that in a meaningful way, in a similar way, as you mentioned, that some other democratic countries or jurisdictions have done, um, in particular the EU. And I think your, your mentioning of risk assessments and codes of practice is, is, a, is a really important highlight here that um, it, let's just say, I mean, so Twitter can do whatever they want. They can impose whatever policies they want, but if they want to sell their product or they want their product to be available to citizens of EU countries, they are going to have to abide, abide by the digital service agreement. It doesn't really matter what, Musk does or wants to do, if it if it's in breach of the digital services agreement, um, they will not be able to deploy their product on European citizens. So that's a very powerful lever that governments have. Um, and if we were to apply that combination of risk assessments and codes of practice to their recent decisions and their recent firings and the in particular the recent product launches, we can see the impact they'd have. So, for example, let's just take the the new verification policy. So that was um, apparently built and deployed in five days. And it's now, I guess, now that the midterms are over, it's going to be launched officially. Um, under the EU risk assessment mandate, they would actually have to do a risk assessment and potentially even a human rights assessment um, on the potential risks embedded in that product change before they deploy it on citizens and users. Um, if that risk assessment determines that there are risks to perhaps, I don't know, the, the, the verification process that has protected um, users in illiberal countries around the world, which seems likely to be the case, um, then they will have to implement a code of practice to show how they've mitigated that risk. So that's not telling them what content they can show and not. That's not embedding the state in content decisions. But it is saying if you're deploying a product on our citizens, you have an obligation to take the risk of that product into consideration. And so that kind of governance mechanism, I think, is going to be picked up by a number of countries, including Canada, and will have a material effect on the behavior of these platforms. Thanks very much, Taylor. Um, Lauren, do you want to go next with the uh, with the question? Absolutely. Um, so our next question is for Yacho, Emma, and Dave as well, if you want to chime in. Uh, over the past few months, Elon Musk has taken positions that seem to replicate the Kremlin's propaganda and the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda. Do you think that Musk's business interest globally, but in China in particular, will influence how he deals with contents critical of the Chinese government or requests to lift labeling on Chinese propagandists from China? Um, well, I mean, first of all, we don't know, right? But if you look at the record, uh, a good example that illustrates um, some problem is that, I mean, when the U.S. Institute, uh, a lockdown in, Calif in California, it, which affected uh, Tesla's operation in, Tesla has a huge factory in California. Musk took to Twitter and, you know, called the, the measures, um, uh, uh, you know, basically criticize the, the measures. And, you know, he thinks that uh, there's too much control. It aligns with his ideology of uh, too much government control. But uh, when the same lockdown was instituted in much, I would say, you know, much draconian lockdown was instituted in Shanghai, which also affected his factory. So operation, he said nothing about it, right? I mean, you know, he picks who to criticize. So he's not, you know, he knows where his interest lies. Um, and there are two facts that we should be aware. One is that, uh, you know, Tesla's interest in China is huge. One is Shanghai has the biggest Tesla's uh, factory, uh, you know, Tesla making cars for the Chinese market also in that factory. Also, the cars made in that factory are exported to the EU market and other markets. But, 
China right now is the second largest market for Tesla, but China is the largest car market around the world. So in the past two years, there's a huge increase of Tesla sale in China. So we expect more sales of Teslas in China. Then the other fact is that the Chinese government has been extremely successful in leveraging that business interest to uh, in acquiring foreign companies. A good example uh, is Apple. Um, Apple has taken down hundreds of VPNs from China's app store uh, because the government doesn't like, you know, the VPNs to be available to Chinese users who can use that to access information the government bans. I mean, it's it, it doesn't only affect Apple's uh, uh, China users. Apple also told some of the creators, show creators on Apple TV to not have shows up on Apple TV that uh, paint China in an active light. So you can see, you know, what people can watch on Apple TV around the world is affected, uh, you know, by Apple's interests in China. So, I mean, this is just one example. There are many other examples of how companies basically succumb to Chinese government's censorship requests because of their huge business in interest in China. You know, we will see whether uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure the governor will, will try to do that to Tesla. We will see whether, you know, Tesla, uh, you know, Musk will, will, you know, resist that kind of uh, uh, pressure. And, it, you know, oftentimes we wouldn't know unless there are insiders who leak to the press. Thank you so much, Yacho. Emma or Dave? Thank you. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is so important and i just wanted to say that you know i mean he seems to be there's been an announcement that you know he's selling some of his shares and things like this i don't think we should be distracted by the by that into thinking that you know um china no longer is is such a big deal or those you know um the, his stake isn't you know the, the future of these companies isn't really you know tied and um you know of great importance still um to his interests. So I, I think, um, you know, we need to remember that any, you know, the, the ways in which these companies operate with this, you know, um, these oligarchs having such great power is always going to be a problem until we take it on. And we've seen what happens with this. This is not just about, you know, this incarnation of Twitter. Um, actually, this has been a problem for a long time. Um, but, you know, in particular with Elon Musk, I mean, he wouldn't be he wouldn't have the power he has today without Russia and China really um and um if we look at the recent whistleblower testimonies um this gives us absolutely no confidence um to think that these platforms can't or won't be used in ways that advantage you know some states over others based on the company or its you know resident oligarchs interests um the recent whistleblower um, showed, you know, just how um, uh, vulnerable our data is to spies and, you know, to, you know, let alone the business decisions and whims of, you know, um, Elon Musk that, we, that we're seeing now, you know, in a moment, you know, you can make dramatic changes that have huge implications for society. So um, I also want to raise the question of how we respond to this because, you know, okay, we maybe um, are concerned about Russia and China uh, having influence in this, um, but but also how we respond to this. Like, I, I don't want to see a future where, you know, our governments also respond by pressurizing um, platforms into, you know, essentially making a, a an inf inf influence operation for, for our governments to be able to dominate in a way that doesn't, you know, uh, consider, um, you know, the, the ability for us to have some kind of pluralistic or safe outcome around the world. And at the moment, you know, we see one or the other. We see, you know, um, when when Facebook, um, you know, is pressured by Western governments, it focuses all of its, you know, content moderation in US and, and Canadian elections and ignores, you know, harms that are taking place in other parts of the world. So we, we need to think very carefully about like what, how we, you know, um, set up regulatory, you know, frameworks that um, ensure that these companies operate in safe ways within certain restrictions and don't necessarily, you know, uh, allow for their monopolization by, you know, anyone.
Um, certainly agree with all that. And I would add that um, it's important to think about Musk's orientations, you know, really from this ideological perspective from which he's coming, you know, the book, uh, The Sovereign Individual, which is kind of a Bible for him and Peter Thiel and David Sachs and Rod Martin and the other people around him, you know, really is about uh, curbing and checking the, the power of governments. And what I think you see in his expressions of support for the Kremlin and, you know, uh, various kinds of dealings with China is, uh, you know, his big picture view that, uh, you know, the United States government, the European governments have been acting in ways that are um, perhaps uh, slowing innovation, um, are getting in the way of the stuff that these guys want to do. And they see this notion of a multipolar world, which is what Putin was talking about at Valdai a couple of weeks ago, uh, as being a fundamentally reasonable view of the world. Now, you know, why do they think it's reasonable? Because they think that if they can act as power brokers between these worlds, then they are able to um, extract advantages and, and to solve things that they think are interesting and what have you. Now, chief among them for Musk being going to Mars. And, you know, he really, really, really wants to do that for his you know own reasons. And, um, you know, I think he sees all of these petty governments and regulatory agencies and whatnot simply as getting in the way. So while, yes, sure, you know, I think that there's an aspect of business advantage to be considered here. And, you know, obviously Teslas are made out of things like aluminum and copper and lithium, all of which are important, you know, resources that Russia and China can bring to bear. Um, I think, you know, you have to look at this from this larger ideological perspective uh, in terms of what he's trying to achieve. And, you know, that doesn't make it right. It's, you know, I think there's all kinds of problems with that. It's just, that's the perspective from which I think he's coming and, and why he might be inclined to align with, uh, you know, Putin or China, you know, as it's convenient for him. Thanks very much, Dave. Um, so I promise uh, all the speakers not to go to the 15 minutes, 15 minutes. So um, perhaps to end this, if you all have perhaps one minute to uh, say uh, a closing message, it doesn't have to be depressing. It doesn't have to be hopeful. But Peter, I know we, I learned a lot from you from from your report, for example, that Canadians are not as divided as we may think. So perhaps you have a hopeful message to to share with your audience. I don't know. <laughs> well, my hope is that we can all look forward to a day when we don't even know who the CEO of half these companies are because they don't occupy so much mind share in our popular imagination. And, and part of that will be because, uh, ideally, they're no longer billionaires. <laughs> secondly, uh, we've actually managed to secure... Uh, appropriate regulation um, that doesn't leave the public square to be defined by the whims of any one person. And uh, that's a day I'm certainly going to look forward to. And I, I think uh, a lot of Canadians who maybe find all of this uh, uh, a bit a bit tedious would, would, would welcome it uh, as well. We've got the tools. Uh, we also have the right allies in countries like the European Union and perhaps uh, the U.S. after the midterms, we'll see, uh, to actually deal with this problem. Um, so there should be no excuses at this point. We needed to regulate the platforms before Musk. We certainly need to regulate the platforms. On the other side of this, it only highlights the importance of, of moving quickly. Thank you very much, Peter. Wacho. You know, Pete, uh, Musk claims that he's a free speech apologist. Absolutist. I mean, the, the platform is really being used by, you know, activists and people who want to criticize the government in a lot of authoritarian countries. It's where the platform that, this is the platform that provided them the, the free speech. Um, so, you know, I really wanted him to hear the voices of those people. You know, if he cares about free speech, care about the free speech of the people who live in authoritarian countries who wanted to criticize the government. Absolutely. Emma and then Dave, Dave Taylor had to leave us to, to give his class. So we'll go to Emma next. Thank you. I, um, I mean, it's really a few. I mean, we, we need um, to be thinking of focused on antitrust. We need to be focused on, you know, reforming um, financial for, you know, transparent um, businesses and so on. And um, we need to be redistributing wealth. <laughs> 
quite honestly, building a society that is a little bit more egalitarian, we need privacy legislation. But, you know, not just, you know, the, the GDPR, we need we need to be thinking about how we, you know, um, regulate globally for the information warfare and what is ethical. You know, um, this these industry practices are the problem and we're not focusing on the industry practices and infrastructure that's that's our, you know, policymakers have created in advance their own elections and you know so and and and, you know governments uh for their own you know (laughs) but you know i i I think we need to be looking back at this infrastructure reform everything in around infrastructure and um organization governance and how we create uh, a communication system that allows you know democracy to flourish at the moment we are failing miserably because so focused on the uh, the posts and the, the little technicalities, which I know we feel more acutely, but actually that's not the center of the problem. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, I would just say that, you know, the results of uh, yesterday's elections are still being sorted. But, uh, you know, I think that in general that went less poorly than a lot of people thought it might in terms of voting well for democracy and, uh, you know, continued freedoms and whatnot. So uh, while I think there's a tremendous amount of work to be done, uh, you know, when we face some real challenges going into uh, this next Congress, we've got immediately this issue with the debt ceiling, which I think is a sleeper issue that a lot of people haven't really considered uh, the full gravity of. However, uh, even though it's very likely that there's going to be a uh, Republican majority in the House and that they may try to, to uh, flirt with a debt default, uh, they're not going to have the kind of mandate um, or the kind of, you know, just general popular support that might uh, have fueled such a thing. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about that. And then lastly, with respect to the effects of, you know, social media and whatnot, um, I think you know, there's a real possibility that Twitter like goes away as a company as we've known it within the next few years. Um, partly because that's exactly what you know Jack Dorsey wanted Elon Musk to do, and if you compare the sort of moves that one would take to uh, you know dismantle Twitter as a company uh, with what the moves he's actually making now uh, are, um, you know they're pretty compatible. <laughs> so we'll see where that goes. But point being with that, um, as we may move into a more decentralized environment, which again is what. Uh, you know, Dorsey has said he wants and, you know, it seems to be compatible with what uh, Musk has been talking about, too. Um, And we also see this emerging with Mastodon. What I'm wondering is, do we end up with a culture that produces more or fewer mass shootings? And, you know, that being a very clear measure of radicalization and something that I think that we, you know, can be measuring directly as to whether or not our culture is healthy or not. Um, so I think that's something to keep an eye on. All of those trends are worth watching and, uh, we'll see where things go. But, um, I certainly appreciate the work of everyone here to, uh, bring attention to these issues and to think about them critically. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for, uh, joining today and thank you for your work. Uh, we organized this quite last minute, so I'm very glad with the response and thank you as well to my colleague Lauren. Um, yes. So thank you and have a great rest of your day.